I always tell people you want to do business fairly, but I mean, obviously that's not always the case, right? <laughs> it's, it's not always the case. And, you know, funny enough, the people that you might like be closest in business with, like you might be going to a golf course or you might be playing ball with them weekend. They know a lot about your family. When when you get into a business dispute, all of that is ammunition, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you realize, like, wait a second, I'm exposed. Now I feel like dead numb to what's going on. I don't know why. Yeah, um, you probably probably because you 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 are numb. You've been been exposed to this so many times there's only so many times you can um in my head there's only so many like everybody has their breaking point their numbing mm-hmm. point like so many times you can watch things go happen over and over till you just become lack of a better term or to use your term numb to it because it's been happening so much so you just like okay it just happened again like you know what i mean like so for me like i've been um i think we we talk we talk pretty often i, I told you i've been um I've been unplugging, man. Like, mm-hmm. like that's why I can't get with her reasoning on why she's a Republican. But personally, I've been rocking like independent since like um probably like nineteen twenty actually. Like, so when I nineteen um, twenty, yeah, man. You know, I'm I'm kind of different a little bit. You know what I mean? You mean you mean nineteen ninety or? You mean no, I'm you talking about the 1919 when I was 19, 20 years old. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it was 19, 20, yo, black really wouldn't crack right now. Yeah. If I was alive to be able to vote and be independent at 19, 20, yo, it looked like I look. Yeah, that would be crazy. Yo. Yeah, you wow. <laughs> you smoked some trees before that. What is it? Oh man, don't yeah. even listen to me, man. Yeah. That's crazy. He's like, yo, 1920. Because <laughs> I do, that happens with me socially. Like, so I don't tell people I'm an attorney. Like, I don't know, rarely do I, I tell people that I'm an attorney, but when they find out, like, they ask me, like, what I do, I tell them. You know what I'm saying? But um, rarely do I come out with that as a, as a topic of a conversation. And you could just immediately see like the shift in their posture, their face, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then their, their, their body language, everything changes like, oh shit, he's in the 30. Like, yo, you were just talking to me regular and then all of a sudden, or then like they switch it, like they immediately start asking me, oh, I got a legal question. I've been looking for a lawyer. Da, da, da. I'm like, bro, like, I don't even practice that type of law. <laughs> Whatever you about to talk about, I don't even practice that because I know it's going to be some bullshit. You're going to ask me about how you how you sue Jolly Ranchers, son? I don't even do that type of work, man. But yeah, so it's all so I see that on the social and like immediately. And I don't think I'm necessarily quote unquote the most polished person, so I don't think I come across like stiff and polished and in the proper English speaking the, the Queen's English. So I think people they don't I don't think uh, they necessarily see me as a, a potential lawyer when they meet me. You know what I'm saying? That's just, it may be in my head though. Yeah, I think that's I think that's your own bias against yourself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. That's 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 the. But the thing, because when you compare, you know what? Uh, you remember one of our professors in law school would say, yeah. "The bar teaches for minimum competency." 
Professor Rogers. So, yeah. you know, it's not like all the people who are part of the noble profession, the law, are um, are are coming across the best. Like, it's kind of like, you know, look at all the presidents. You know, you got Donald Trump's in there. Yeah. You, got, yeah. you got a lot of, you got uh, Bush. You got people that yeah. you wouldn't quite say. So, I, and you're you're above that, right? And that's the standard yeah. for presidencies. So. <laughs> What's going on, world? This is Travis Bethea. I'm the host of Redefine Print. Thank you for tuning in. You could have been in any place else in the world, but you're here listening to my voice. And listening to about to listen to this podcast. So I'm about to give you a, a quick story behind the scenes of this podcasting thing that nobody tells you about. So I recorded this episode about, I guess, like two weeks ago now. Maybe it was last week. I don't know. I have a couple episodes in the can. Um, not to brag or nothing, but, you know, trying to do what I do. But um, so... I recorded this episode. I was editing. I started editing the episode last week and I was doing it. I do it on in Anchor, actually, which you're going to hear an ad from Anchor from me later on. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> but um, and Anchor is a web based software. Um, so the the pros of Anchor is that, you know, you can record directly into the app to the or if you lose if you're using the web browser you can record directly into the web if you don't have a microphone and it publishes everything it publishes your podcast every place so you don't have to worry about you actually publishing it separately on all these different platforms so that's wonderful um the downfall is that when you edit the editing is not their best thing so if you can get a different different editing tool and then upload to upwork that's probably the best but i don't have that so i edit on anchor and um it's cloud-based so you know i have a i have a mac that's not a power book i don't think not hell no i don't do power books no more but this is like the macbook whatever do they even call it power books anymore it might be just macbook pro whatever this is a macbook so i've been rocking with mac since like 2003 2004 i've been on the mac thing way before y'all but anyway um so i'm i'm editing and you know i don't necessarily worry about saving and 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 bugs and and stuff like that and viruses for for the mac because you know it's a mac you know we mac rocks out no matter what so i'm editing this thing you know i'm not thinking about saving the episode so i'm going through making all the edits I'm like, yo, this episode is about to be fire. This is about to be the best editing job that I've done to this point with this podcast. I'm I'm super duper hype. So, you know, I walk away from the pod, from the from the computer. I actually close the screen, which has never been a problem before. Close the screen, you know, packed up, left the office, and then I was gonna open up when I got back home. So, mind you, I never saved the podcast, the editing, right? So this podcast is was on the long end the longer end for me so i'm I'm listening through it like yo this is this shit is fire <laughs> i'm did my head and this is on point so i get home open the open this computer screen and 
yo, the computer is off. So I'm like, yo, I know my battery didn't die. So my battery didn't die. Like the screen is black. So I'm like, damn, my battery died. I hope I didn't lose all these edits. So, you know, I, I cut the computer back on. Man, the little, the little uh, error screen comes up like, yo, your computer shut down because of a of a whatever it was some type of issue internal issue we're sending the information to um apple right now yo i was so effing mad yo yo i was so mad like i'm like damn i gotta listen to this whole episode again and edit it you know what yeah i'm just frustrated man so i think i'm finished well i'm finished editing it because i'm not not going back to edit this is why i need a team um Denise Duran, where you at? The pie mother is supposed to be sending me the contract so you could take care of these duties. Um, if you're listening to this, you better share it and, and make a comment or something on this part. That's how I know if people are listening to them when I drop their name. But anyway, this episode is with Chinadua Neckway. He's a venture capitalist. Just like He's like my little brother. He was my law school classmate. Very good friend. Uh, we took the bar together. Um, you know, we, we share information. We talk pretty often. So it's, it's always kind of weird to have a podcast with somebody you talk pretty often with, um, you know, to have to talk about things that you don't talk about, about, but we actually achieved that. And I think that you're going to, um, you're going to enjoy it. So sit back and relax. And, um, when you're done, uh, like rate and review. And if you feel so, if you like the podcast, please consider, donating to the cause. All right, peace. State your name for the record. Um, so I'm Chinadua Nekwe. I'm the general partner at uh, O21, which is an early stage venture capital fund that's invested in cross-border opportunities at the seed stage um, based in New York. Uh, I am also producer, we're incubating, and I'm producing a um, podcast called Venture the World as well, which is a business podcast that serves as a field guide for building and investing in um, global markets. Um, and uh, that's what I do. I'm a former or reformed attorney that became an investment banker that now has become an investor. Oh, so you never practice? Well, not, not technically. I practice a little bit, but I don't consider it practicing. I, I actually want to de-emphasize any participation I've had with the law in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Well, you know, um, it's one of those things. It's a double-edged sword because going to law school and getting a law degree, it, it does demystify the whole sort of legal um, experience. It actually helps, it demystifies it and all the, at the same time to help under, helps you value what people bring to the table as an attorney because um, you can understand the risk and you can understand, you know, the, the challenges or what issues you will have to navigate. But like, and it gives you a lot of credibility, especially if you're very young and you go to law school. It gives you a lot of credibility that you probably don't deserve, right? So you were saying about uh, appreciating what lawyers bring to the table. 
Okay, yeah. I've I learned Love to appreciate them. what lawyers bring to the table because lawyers actually sort of, on one side, they, they'll tell you all the risk and they'll tell you the issues you might face, but then also on the other side, lawyers um, will do the work that you don't want to do, right? And they'll do it mm -hmm. thoroughly. And because I'm a lawyer, I realize the work I'm trying to avoid doing. And then, <laughs> and then I also realize um, what needs to be done. So it, it kind of it demystifies the whole process, which was good because I remember when I was an undergrad, I did business and I was always, you know, I think I need a lawyer. I was always worried about the risks that were involved in anything I was doing. And, you know, that sort of that thing in the back of your mind, like, am I doing this right? Uh, as a lawyer, I get it removes that sort of doubt. Um, to a degree, um, but what one of the things I've learned is when people see that you're a lawyer, they sort of pigeonhole you and what your capabilities are on the business side or just alternatively outside of the law. Like you might have been a musician or some type of dancer, but then you got a law degree and people can't imagine you to be a dancer, but you spent most of your life dancing, spent three years yes. in law school. Yeah, well, so that's interesting. I never heard that uh, before. So, I mean, I heard it. I can imagine it from the social aspect of it. But mm -hmm. tell me some limitations or pinch holes that people have um, put you in as far as a lawyer, where you have a law degree, practicing law or not, mm -hmm. from the business end. Like, what type of stuff, like, they, your limitations do you think they, they put on you or just the box they put you in? It's interesting because in on a couple of occasions it's happened to me where, um, either it would be searching for a job opportunity or looking for partnerships. The way that I've seen some business people pigeonhole me was to say, you know, are you a really a, uh, a business person or are you a lawyer that does business? Meaning that are you really willing to take the risk that mm -hmm. most business people are willing to do? Um, are you really willing to actually sort of you know, it, there's this funny story about, uh, what's his name? Irving Johnson, so Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson, his, yeah. One of his mentors asked him, you know, said to him that he's not, he doesn't really like to deal with um, athletes because athletes don't really uh, go to the mat for business opportunities because they're worried about their reputation, Right. That was essentially the the essence of the conversation. He said, "But if you want to be, if he wanted to be his mentor, is actually um, the owner of the Lakers. He said he wanted to be his mentor, and so he he basically said, I will do whatever it takes to be successful in business.' Right? Mm -hmm. And I think a similar way, that's a similar kind of vibe that people feel about lawyers in business, where they kind of feel that lawyers are always going to maintain." the sort of risk averse mentality. And then also on top of that, the way that, you know, non-lawyers will go to the mat for a business. Lawyers always sort of uh, try to maintain the air of respectability. Of Got business. you. Yeah, you know, I can so see that. Yeah. That, those are two, those are kind of two examples, but I have like real examples of what has happened. Like I remember I was uh, up for an opportunity with, um, you know, this is like from 2011 or so. I was up for an opportunity with to work at Wells Fargo, 
um, okay. their investment bank. And, you know, it came down for, to them selecting between, and it's happened a couple of times between me and two people, right? And of the candidates, I had significant experience, but I also came from a background where I didn't have an MBA and they had yeah. an MBA and they, and they had a MBA, right? I had a JD, they had an MBA. But plus my experience, for some reason, they consider an MBA, I've, you know, it's, for whatever it's worth, both are, I've been to both schools, you come out, they're both useless for the job, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> so I, I was really, I was really sort of surprised that they, they, they weighted as a factor. Um, yeah. And they, that's what they told me straight up. And the same thing happened when I was up for a private equity opportunity at around the same time where they told me, uh, well, you know, uh, the other candidates, and it was again down to two people. And they said the other candidates have an MBA and you don't. So we think they're more into business. And, yeah, you know, yeah, but that's yeah, just people. I get, yeah, I get it. Nah, that, that, ironically, that makes sense. Although I've never thought about it from the other end because I always tell people, like when people come to me, um, actually put this on my social media. I said I wrote like, "Don't let the lawyer kill your kill your deal," because lawyers we so risk averse, like we're trained to be so risk averse that we will like I say like lawyer a, a deal to death, and it's like really, you know what I'm saying? Like if it, I can't tell like as a lawyer I'm gonna tell you the risk. I tell you like, all right, this is the risk that you're gonna take. I'm trying my purpose. My job is to tell you the risk and probably eliminate your risk if can be but if you got to take risk don't let me kill your deal mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying because like or if you gotta if you gotta get jerked on your deal to get you to the next place like i'm not the person i'm gonna tell you no don't do it <laughs> but <laughs> if that's gonna get you to the next level then you probably should get jerked and try to renegotiate on the the next deal or just if this deal is going to get you in the door and you definitely know that you're not you're not getting a fair shake then you might want to take the deal, but I always say like I wouldn't do it. As an, I'm, well, I'm telling you as an attorney, I won't do it, but I'm not trying to sell weed, marijuana, <laughs> legal marijuana. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. you gotta figure out like if this is the deal for you. Like I can't tell you to to take that deal. I always make my clients take ownership of their decisions anyway. Like I'm only mm-hmm. gonna give you advice. Like, and I, what I realize is practicing is like people don't want to take. Um, ownership of their decisions man <laughs> it's weird man it's weird like i think the people that really really become super super successful does but a lot of people just want you to tell tell them what to do and i'm like i can't tell you what to do i can only tell you the options and the pros and cons from a legal standpoint but i can't tell you like sign on a dial line if you're gonna know you sort of get 15 on a dollar but they're only gonna give you five like i can't I can't tell you not to do that if that's going to get you in the door, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the that's the one of the challenges, right? As a lawyer, even in, just not even as a lawyer, but as a lawyer in business, you know, you you kind of want to don't over want to over lawyer your own deal. As yeah. and I, one one of the things that I've kind of come to grips with is that um, the a, a deal is really two people and then you want to work out the details as much as possible through a document but at the heart of it if the spirit of the person right not writing the document not the lawyers but it's the spirit of the person that has to adhere to the document 
doesn't it doesn't want to, it's not going to happen. I mean, we can. It's not going to happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So and and that's why I realized like it's it's you got to get more toward the core of the person because what happens is eventually you're going to get into a dispute with whatever agreement you have. I've I've learned it time and time again. There's going to be a dispute even amongst friends, even you know business business friends, people that are collaborating. There's going to that's be a, a fact. Yeah. And if they don't have the if your counterparty doesn't have a desire to really work it out, it's going to be business frustration. And a lot of times that's what you're going to end up with. Someone wants to pay you half of what you, you're owed. And then they mm-hmm. realize they have the upper hand and you don't have any leverage to force it. And then, you know, ultimately are they judgment proof? Are they, mm-hmm. do they have too yeah. much money to fight you? You know, so there's so yeah. many ways that even no matter what you got in the agreement, if the money goes into their account and then you want it to come out to yours, yeah. You just gotta be hoping. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I, I tell um another thing I tell all my clients is because a lot of clients they come to me, they don't have like their operating agreement in place and all that type of stuff. I'm say, I tell them like, you know, at the end of the day you need it, you need one. One, because you know, it lays out how you're supposed to operate as a business, right? Mm-hmm. That is basic, but people <laughs> like nah you do and then second is like I always tell them like no matter what like y'all gonna have issues it's just, it's just inevitable like life goes on money money happens like people get families divorce people end families you know what I'm saying like you you you're gonna disagree on a on a split on whether you should take this deal or not it is inevitable that you're gonna have an issue like so you might as well like like you like you said like hopefully you don't business with somebody that you feel like in their core they're going to be stand-up guys or gals at the end of the day but it's going to happen like you're going to disagree on something and it's like how do you work through that disagreement and i don't know man i don't think it's a relationship at the end of the day although it's business at the end of the day it's a relationship so it's kind of like that's when that emotional intelligence come into play man like exactly some cases if you if an offer is made and then you would effectively be diluted once the offer is made it accelerates their ownership so if it was debt it then converts to equity and then they have a voting share that now gotcha. dilutes you yeah and now i've seen that before yeah. yeah so so what happens is you thought something you thought you were in a, the driver's seat and you thought you knew your business but you didn't read the fine print of what happens in certain situations and that's where you know uh, a lot of people don't do this but it's like once you get an investment you should also pay a lawyer to help you to do scenario planning so you understand how your business works if this happens what if that happens what right? scenario planning damn that's a I don't offer that as I might start offering that so. no you should because a yes. lot of time, if someone has received an investment there's you know, there's multitudes of different investment documents throughout their the life of their business, and they're not a hundred percent sure of what happens. You know, they might have bank financing as well. They're not sure what happens if this happens or what if this financial covenant. And that, in and of itself, provides from a if you're a founder, that should provide you a little bit more clarity to be in that driver's seat when you might raise funding or you might need to do something in the future as opposed to doing it all at once 
you know, sometimes opportunities happen quickly. I mean, things are really interesting when you uh, when you think about contracts. So it is good. That's why one of the things it is good to have the sort of background in the law. But uh, I do try to de-emphasize it because it is it the the two reasons why is because of why some people might view me as less of a business person because of it. Um, but then the second reason is it's actually very useful um, to sort of have it in my back pocket and people try to you you can learn a lot about how people are trying to negotiate with you if they just think that they're negotiating and without a person who understands what they're trying to slip in and all that. Can imagine, can you imagine like a female Trump, yo, being president? <laughs> yo, can you imagine a female period getting to that level being like Trump? I can't imagine it. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of reasons why you can't, right? Mainly, there's, there's one reason. It's like the infidelity at home, like the home life problems to me were the biggest issue. Like how, how did the majority of voters get over that? So yeah. uh, do I imagine a woman if, to be honest, this, the threshold has been broken as a president. I think so, the three, threshold, I think, yeah. I think three, so, and I think that's wives. why the uh, three wives. I think, I think, I think uh, he, uh, there's no going back. Same thing with, with Obama, there was no going back. Like the two presidents in our, in our lifetime, I think where it was like, all right, we can't go back to like the norm was, um, the norm as it's society, as society sees, moves mm-hmm. forward. I mean, I guess that's every president, but the ones that I think really, really was Obama, because I mean, basically because of who he was, right? Mm-hmm. And then who Michelle was and who his family was. And then I think Trump, I think Trump is even, whatever Obama's set as the new norm, mm-hmm. Trump mm-hmm. came around and said, nah, yo, <laughs> shit is different too. I'm, I'm on some other joint too. This shit is different. <laughs> yeah, but you used to... <laughs> You used to be a uh, Republican, right? Oh, yeah. Black yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah talk about you know, that. You know, it's funny. I actually just changed uh, my voter registration. Not that I didn't vote against party lines previously, okay. um, but I just changed my voter registration mainly because I want to caucus differently, right? So, you Explain know, DC, that. Explain that. So, like, in to be able to participate in selecting candidates for a party, you have to participate in a primary or caucus, which is limited, depending on each state, to the party that you register to vote with. So recently, for the, I mean, for the past, I guess since I've been able to vote, I've been a uh, card-carrying Republican, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, which is, you know, Funny because I was actually having a, a conversation. This takes us to another place, but most of the male, black male Republicans that I've ever known, um, most of them, I would say about 80% of them, have been driven there through a wedge issue, which is female uh, or women's reproductive rights, right? Okay. Um, their, their terminology is infanticide, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are really dead set against that. That's 90% or 80% of the people. 20% are like me 
that I've met that are kind of like fiscal conservatives. And previously, the reason why I shifted was I sort of shifted to an independent mind frame um, mm. during uh, the run up to the election of uh, Trump. But mm -hmm. prior to that, I was, you know, I was I voted for Obama, but I was still a Republican because mm -hmm. I'm black. But <laughs> but, the, but the 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 real key was the fact that I was um, with the Trump. Like I felt that racists were in both parties, and mm -hmm. I actually felt like the rate the the posture of. Uh, racism in the Democratic Party was paternalistic, meaning that everybody felt like they weren't, uh, that they had to tell black people how they could live, like, you know, respectability politics or something yeah. like that. So I felt like that's racism in and of itself. And then I thought there was another leg of racism that the Republican Party had, but it was like the acceptance and tolerance of racism, of, gotcha. of people who are truly racist, that were on the fringe. But that acceptance and tolerance kind of over the period in time I've been a Republican has become more uh, welcoming and uplifting of those of people who exhibit those traits, which I guess is probably to be expected. If you accept them in your party, you welcome them and you, you're going to start saying, well, why don't why can't I be a leader if you don't think that racism disqualifies me from being a part of the party or anything mm -hmm. like that so i just decided that i'm not going to be a place in places that sort of celebrate racist gotcha. um, or racist That's ideologies racist ideology that that makes sense i like i like your distinction of it i i, I didn't think about it that deeply between because i think everybody's a racist personally but mm -hmm. i think you know are you going to kill someone because of the color of the skin or the ethnic background racism like that's the one extreme in right Mm -hmm. And then, like, I think the everyday racism that we are actually cool with is, like, using terms like, oh, she's so ghetto. Like, you're talking about black people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, like, telling somebody, like, yo, your name, why, why you name, why your name is Chinadu? Why your name is Detravius? You go with something like David, you know what I'm saying? Or Patrick, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's those, those subtle types of racism that we, good hair, like, you know what I'm saying? I used to teach you about your hair, like. Especially when, like when Nigerian here <laughs> when uh, <laughs> Little Wayne came up with it. <laughs> no, you know but I'm I, I, like, I agree. I think those there there's that that same type of racism, man. And I I mean, you know what I also call it? I call it the it's like you know death by a thousand cuts. Like if I have lower absolutely. expectations of, of everything, and I say, well, if you do something that is like natural hair or something that is distinctly black. That's obviously not going to do well for you in a, in a corporate environment. But if I do yeah. something that's distinctly, I guess, uh, you know, uh, people of white color, yeah. right, <laughs> uh, will it, it would do me better. Like that just de-emphasizes what is valuable within me. And then I start to devalue myself because I can't exhibit things. All right. Exactly. I shouldn't. So I, I really detest that sort of yeah. uh, philosophy where I think it's. You know, I, I think things are changing, you know, when we were, uh, you know, in the early 2000s and so now things have, have definitely changed. Yeah, um, I think two, two, 2020 has definitely shaken things up, man. I think <laughs> Trump and then 2020, the last four years in 2020. But we'll see, like, if there's going to be sustained effort at, you know, embracing 
blackness, for the lack of a better term. You know what I'm saying? And and trying to make amends with that. We'll we'll see. Only time will tell. But right now it's it's on fire, literally in some places, yeah. And um Yeah, it's on fire and I'm really you know, it's it's a historic time to be alive all the time, but it's yeah. historic in this moment to see societies when they change, you know, when yeah. they're um and you know, it's it's over the past sort of uh decade or so, I've been in countries where there's been like these sort of upheavals like i was in um egypt when there was the oh you was there uh, when it yeah yeah i was there for business meeting and then um in i was in nigeria um in 2000 and the top of 2012 the beginning and it was this um there was a, a riot or not a riot, but actually a protest, a nationwide protest um, that was to rejecting the, the removal of a subsidy. And that was like, you know, seeing the factions that are in that are at play and try to understand what the motivations are. And then fortunate enough for me, I missed the first Black Lives Matter moment, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I, rem- I remember 2015, I was living in Nigeria and I remember seeing things that were really emotionally drawing, uh-huh. which, to be honest, just to be honest, it had numbed me to this moment, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Where at that time, uh, it you know there was Amadou Diallo um, in the early two thousands. There was Amadou Diallo. There was a lot of people that you know this has been a reoccurring uh, theme. But in two thousand fifteen, it seemed like there was a culminus of sort of of a similar ilk of what's going on now, but I wasn't in the country. I was able to watch it from afar and I I was emotionally moved by the, at least the media coverage and then also the sort of artistic responses to the moment. And then also with the the activist um, engagement, but I don't, I'm off, I'm off Facebook right now. Mm-hmm. I've been off about a month and some change. I, I generally take a month off anyway, but like this time it feels different for me too. Like I don't know if I want to go back, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you know what you know what's funny too? The funny that you bring up Facebook and we talk about numbness because there's one person from our uh, law school days that actually um what she does is I swear she is a Trump like element. Mm-hmm. If she ever gets in politics, she'll she'll like take over. But it's uh, you talking um, about um, she's in the political uh, life in a right, right? Yeah, Elizabeth Matory. Yeah, Elizabeth Matory. We could say her name because she's a public figure. You know what I'm saying? So exactly. So she actually purchased a book, man. No, the thing is, I support her. But yeah. what one of the things that I find to be funny is the fact that I've gotten sort of numb or apathetic. Not apathetic, truly, but you know the way that the young people or the younger people are on the street motivated to sort of make change. Um, whereas I am at the point where it's like, I, maybe I should, I focus on economic justice and that's my change that I need to make. Um, she, while we were in law school, I remember there was this one moment where I, it sticks with me to the day. I was, you know, it was like, uh, you remember there were a lot of law school clubs we try to entice you to come to their uh, meetings. Oh, I think I know where you're going, but go ahead. Doing yeah. lunch, right? And they, and they would have food, pizza, <laughs> right? 
I know where you're going already. <laughs> and I said to her, and you know, she comes up to me and she was the head of the student bar association, which is the equivalent of student government association for law school. And she, so she was the president and she's, you know, talking about some meeting that they're having. And I'm saying, and I, you know, she tries to hand me a flyer and I look at her dead in the face and I say, you know, are you going to have some pizza? And you know, this was, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a, an untoward comment to me. And the way she looked at me like dead in my soul, she was like, don't be apathetic. <laughs> and I, I was like, and I realized like like she was trying to organize an effort that she found to be very um, prescient at the time. And I was like, wow, I do have to care about things. And I, it, it sticks to me today. So which, you know, which is what makes things strange when I look at her evolution from Democrat to Republican. Right. And, um, you know, she's a felt she she I was. And we were in the same party for a while, you know. Yeah. Republican Party is a big tent party, yeah. right? You got Liz Matoris, you got Chinna doing <laughs> neck wave. <right? laughs> I think, I think with her, I think the uh, the reason why I can't like jump on her, her like the reason I can't, I I don't understand her position and people that take her position. The her argument is that the Democratic Party hasn't done anything for Black people. Right. So she's going over to the Republican Party. But it's like within that same spirit, like the Republican Party, if you really believe that, then do anything for black people, too. So it's it's like it's not like the Republican Party was didn't exist the whole time. Democratic Party was was out here on the streets. And then when you do when you look at on a federal level, it's like within our lifetime is the the party power has been pretty much been like split. And it might be more, might have been more Republicans in office than Democrats at this point in our life. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, like, you know what I'm saying? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, if that's your position on, that's why. Because, I mean, that's what I get why she went over to the the, the uh, Republican Party. Like, stop stop having them tote you out and taking your vote for granted. It's like, but the Republicans don't really seem like they're even trying to get our votes. <laughs> <laughs> So in a way, isn't that taking our vote for granted? If they're not even like, well, we don't need their vote. We're gonna rock on without them. You know what I'm saying? They automatically thought I registered as independent. I didn't. So when we was in high school, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. I think it was a they 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 marketed it as a, re- a requirement that we had to register to vote to graduate. But now that I think about it, I don't think that's a law. Like I don't think <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can make that a requirement. But I think they. That's how they marketed to the student body. I, I believe that's how they marketed to us. So when we was registered, like so we took it, we registered in class. It probably was like social studies or something. And I guess like I put Democrat because everybody I knew was a Democrat. So I probably was like, yeah, I'm a Democrat. But once I got out like high school and started reading books on my own and then started like having my own quote unquote mind and develop my own critical thoughts, it's like, yo, it doesn't, for me, it didn't make sense to like pledge allegiance to one side like that. Like, I, like cause I think it's really, for me, it's issues. Like, I mean, I guess everybody has one issue that I think, maybe wrong, I think 85, 95% of the people vote who their parents voted for. It's true. Me, yeah. it, it, it's very true. That's very true. Um, when I started to, like, think I would register for 
be a Republican. Mm -hmm. I was, it was because of my conversation with my mother and mm -hmm. she was initially a Republican. And that was primarily because most people don't uh, talk about this and it's, it's kind of strange, but in 1980, I think it was 1987, the Republicans under, um, Bush, right? No, under Reagan. Reagan. Okay. Under yeah. Reagan, Reagan, they Bush gave immigrants amnesty. Amnesty, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And I don't remember that, mother, but I, I read about it. Yeah, yeah. My, my yeah. mother was one of those immigrants. Yeah. And so, you know, the Republicans really were on the, the immigration side. They thought they might get a boon of yeah. voters oh, yep. through, through immigration. And that didn't necessarily pan out, which made them take the exact opposite. I mean, it was hard fought. For them to make that happen but they did it within their party it, mm -hmm. but you know they've gone from that type of party that would even debate it to a party that would never debate it openly around uh giving amnesty to uh immigrants but that's how i initially became uh a, a republican yeah, because I, I considered it strongly because of my mother's immigration and then mm -hmm. also i took you know some license because it was like you know the economic issues i could get behind as well um and then the lack of like paternalistic racism mm -hmm. well what i one thing that i find interesting you mentioned this about how you know getting people to register to vote one of the things i i, I recognize about civic duty that is really kind of strange and missing is if you at any job right went and you had to do jury duty you would get off mm -hmm. You'll get paid time off for jury duty. It's like in your employment agreement and like almost yeah. in everyone's employment agreement for for jury duty. And yeah. then you will also um, get paid to be there by the government. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But when we talk about another constitutionally enshrined uh, civic duty of voting. Right. There's no payment. There's no time off. <laughs> In fact, people are trying to discourage you from doing it. Yeah. It's really a strange sort of thing. Well, to I always <laughs> say, like, like there's a reason why they don't want you to vote. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can go into that on another podcast. Or, or You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Like, there's a reason why there are powers that be in... Uh, hurdles that are in place to get you f to not vote because some people are like yo voting that shit don't matter but it's a reason why like it's a whole bunch of steps of, of, of ways they disqualify you from not voting or like you said not, just not even encourage you to encouraging you to vote like why isn't voting a national holiday right mm -hmm. a national you know, paid holiday you, you know what i i think is going to be interesting is if the democrats i mean because democrats don't really play a good game in terms of politics. Let me just put it yeah. out there, right? Because if they played a good game, the the Republican Party would shift, right? I'm mm -hmm. I'm I'm gonna say that that um right now the Republican Party plays the game of limiting the voting population of the people who vote and just focus on wedge issues that will make people come out to vote. Uh -huh. So of that voting population, they need to be motivated to come out to vote, and you decrease the amount of people that vote. But if the Democrats actually, and you know, like LeBron's effort in getting people out to vote, I don't think people are ready for the world, what the world looks like politically, 
when everyone or a majority of people vote? Like, uh-huh. what issues would carry the day? How would the political parties form? Like, like I said about the immigration issue, it switched parties in our lifetime. In our lifetime, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right, and but what does it look like when, you know, maybe you take away the the voting rights element of you know like that issue, and you get everyone to vote? How do Republicans have to shift? What constituencies do they start to move towards? You know, um, yeah. I don't know. But uh, I think it's interesting, especially in this moment, talking about politics or anything else going on in the world. Is the um, one thing that I was reading recently that um, has got me is the the leaders in Atlanta, the TIs, the uh, Killer Mike's. <laughs> Killer Mike. Um, <laughs> no, what what. I find it to be very interesting because no, nah, no, nah, I'm laughing because because I'm not laughing because of who he is and what he stands for. Because I was just talking to talking to somebody about his name. Mm-hmm. It's like his name is Killer Mike. Like you start another conversation because he was like the Killer Mike's. <laughs> 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 it is a way, different way to enter a conversation. But what's crazy is, you know, not that long ago we had people like Louis Farrakhan planning. Million man marches and million, million marches, marches in 2005 to today, where there's not. I mean, maybe this is a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but today there's no leadership. And the Black Lives Matter movement purposely chose to not have leaders, but um, you know, now we're looking at hip hop artists as de facto leaders. They weren't elected, they weren't, they didn't even have to organize anything. I mean, they could be really pillars of their community, but there's a lot of people who are pillars in their community, like, um, you know, there's probably today's Barack Obama, right? And they're not getting a platform, mm-hmm. right? And they they probably are well-known in their community. And I'm just, you know, it's just an interesting kind of world that we live in, even, you know, especially given the moment that we are where there's so many people on social media that are like celebrities, just mm-hmm. influencers. How come there hasn't been like a, I, I guess what I would call, I guess there was D-Ray uh, for a while. Sean King, right? I guess he would qualify. Nah. Is, is, he a, is he an activist or is he a thief? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, I don't follow the dude. Um, <laughs> Like I said, I unplug because, like, for to me, I think he, I think he is, I think he's both. I think he's an activist. And, and I think he's is, a, that's your hundred. It's and it's at the same scale. That's the real crazy part, right? Like, yeah. like how do you become an activist that is like he's his level of sharing information is great, mm-hmm. right? If it's a post from him, I will absolutely consume the news that he will send out. And I know that I have to do my own fact checking, right? I know okay. he's not doing that part. No, nah, he's definitely not doing that part. <laughs> <laughs> but the the part that he's equally good at is like the massive gathering of assets of people for those same kind of causes. Yeah. And for whatever it's worth, the best way to do things that kind of eliminates all doubt is definitely what he doesn't do, right? Which would be like publishing, financials. Once you would be <laughs> accused, you would be like, you know what? 
I have not done anything. I'm just going to audit these financials and no one will ever be able to touch me. And outside of that, once you're accused of fraud at the scale he has, if you're not, you know, sanitizing the record through like complete transparency, you get what his public personnel, uh, his public uh, reputation is right now, which yeah. is muddied. Yeah, I thought he did release his financial statements. I, I thought that was the thing where he was, they, like, they called his hands out and he said it. He released. I think he said it. I don't, I didn't see it, but I think he tweeted it that he released because I think Black Lives Matter was going um hard at him, and I think he was like, "Yo, I released my financial statements to such and such, and they didn't find anything. All the money's accounted for." But I, I really don't know because I I don't follow the dude. Um, I used to follow him, but he he became he's one of those black people. I think we talked about this many a times behind the scenes, obviously, because this is the first time we talk about it on the mic. Is that he's rooted in victimhood, yeah. and a part a part of me, like eighty percent, ninety percent of me, like although I I empathize with that position, um, and I understand that we're all victims to a certain degree. I I don't see myself as a a victim the way I think he does. He sees himself the way that he might see me as a victim. Like nah, like my name Detravius. I've been Detravius from day one. I'm black. Like. I can't focus on the people gonna give me opportunity because of, I don't have the clean name and I'm short and black. You know what I'm saying? And now <laughs> <laughs> I can't focus on that. I got to keep it going. Like I think a lot of his powers come from people that are like they see themselves for better or worse as a victim. Like I'm a victim of sexism, racism, whatever. Because we all are victims of that. But I think some people get their power from that, and I think some people get their platforms from that. Because I could play that in in. I could play that game and get a lot of people on my side and all that, but I, I just choose not to because I don't. It's not authentic to me. Like I don't see myself. I see myself as a as the motherfucking man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's like, yo, you can't see yourself as the motherfucking man and then see yourself as the victim at the same damn time. At least in my, I can't wrap my head around it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Personally, I can't do it. But I like, although I know I'm a victim, I know anything can happen to me because I'm black and all that. I know, I know all those things, but I can't focus on that on my day-to-day yeah and that's why i, got, I had to stop following him because he's like he has to have a team by, by now yo mm-hmm. like that just gathers all the crazy nudes and you know just send it to him and he pushed send on his well he might be running his twitter man he has to man because he well, he oh, go ahead I, you know when you with the type of attention that he has I, i'm sure his his inbox is full of like different things and he has to filter them out. I mean, I don't know if it's him or he has a team. I would hope he has a team at the scale of things that he's doing. I think he, you remember he launched something last year, like a radio station or, or a, a news network that was supposed to be. I don't know where it is. I don't know if other people are listening, but he did launch it. I was watching, you know, I was interested. I was thinking to myself, maybe he and Proz should have got together. Remember, Proz did that commercial <laughs> Yeah, you wow. <laughs> yeah, you wow. <laughs> now I think um I think he's needed though. I think he's I think he's needed. I don't wanna I think he is both uh a thief and an activist. I mean I, I think a lot of people, I think Al Sharpton is. Um 
I don't know about Al Sharpton uh, being anything. I mean, in my era, he hasn't anything, been anything but a newscaster and an organizer mm-hmm. of the NAN network. In other, in like the eighties and the nineties, he was more of a you know, activist organizer. He's still an activist, but he's he's had a shady past too. You know what I'm saying? Al, you listening to me? You know you got a shady past. I doubt that you're listening, but you know you got a shady past. He was an informant too. Um, but that's a whole nother issue. I mean, uh, really? But I, yeah, he was an informant. Like, yeah, that's that's public information now too. He worked for the NYPD. He was an informant for the NYPD. Interesting. Yeah, you he know, tried to set the mob up for, with a uh, with a drug deal. Like, I think he had some keys of coke. He was trying to sell them. They didn't take the bait though. Yeah, just Google it. Everybody, Google it. Do your Googles. Well, wow. So you yeah, know, he, so he's wearing a wire. And uh, his his version of the story is that that's what that wasn't what that it wasn't about a drug deal or whatever. But it's online. All of it is online. Wow, that's Doctor Sebi level of interest and intrigue, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, no, just seriously, like uh, you reveal that, like oh, it's all documented. That's interesting, man. That's another thing that the law, being a lawyer gets you. Inside you, you realize how to easily search for people's, uh, for the details, the juicy details of uh, cases and things cases, like yep, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was gonna uh, before I forget because we've been talking for almost an hour. We got to get into the fine print of what you actually do, your okay. day job, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, just a couple points before we get there. Like I was thinking about this ironically today about quote unquote leaders, and you said like you know like the killer mics, the Ti. Without so I was googling. Well, um, I knew that, um, I hope, I don't, I don't think people realize this is how educated, like formally educated our past leaders were. Like, so people, even like the people like the Black Panthers, like people don't realize Huey P. P. Newton ended up getting a PhD mm-hmm. from like UCLA or some crazy shit. Like that's not, no, and it wasn't like an official, it wasn't like one of them trains where they just, they give you the joint, what they call like Bill Cosby the had honorary, the honorary yeah. joints. Nah, he had a PhD. Then you had Dr. Martin Luther King. You had the SNCC movement. Um, mm-hmm. Even uh, what's her name is like uh, Angela Davis. She she has a PhD. I mean, they got the, but they were very like they weren't like dumb. He's not saying like Ti and 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 Killer Mike. Well, Killer Mike has a master's degree, but he never talks about. That's a whole nother story. Um, but not saying that they are dummies, but like our past leadership, I don't know what it says about society. Like these people were very well educated, very well read. Like they weren't just like rappers that rappers that just happened to become activists, you know what I'm saying? Or or singers that became activists. Like they were very like deep into like studies and research and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I think that's you know that's one of the benefits of going to Howard uh, Law School that I learned. Maybe I, I wasn't as well read as I thought I was coming into law school, but learning about how uh, activism was the long game and how cases like especially with Brown versus Board of Education, the case that integrated schools, um, how the path to that case was you was casework done by um, one of the first um, deans of Howard Law School, Charles Hamilton Houston, along with um, Langston, uh, not Langston Hughes, but uh, Thurgood, uh, Marshall. Thurgood Marshall. 
to basically make sure that the cases and the precedent or the decisions that the cases actually had at the end of them would create the track record for them to actually eventually take a court case to the uh, Supreme Court. Court. Yeah. But that's a 15 years. So 15 years, yep. Yeah. So having to have that type of plan, that type of dedication, the patience, and to, to know that you're affecting the strategy, that you're just not trying to get headlines, but when you're trying to get headlines as a part of a, a broader strategy, it's, it's to me, you and you still have to be respond in the moment to things that are strategic for your longer-term goal. That, to me, is the difference between what, I mean, whether people are educated or not, it's mm-hmm. the how well is this fitting whatever's happening, however you're responding in the now, fitting into the broader narrative of the strategy that we as, you know, you as a group, if you have a group that's organized by yourself or the groups that are coordinating sort of social justice, economic justice for people of color or black people specifically, how is what, how we're behaving fitting into that? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, whether it's, um, you know, anyone that is speaking out at the moment now, even though, you know, the good brother, Reverend Al Sharpton is seemingly, you know, t- he has a March planned in August. And oh, he does? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah. in, it's either in Houston or Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm still looking for the level of coordination that, Brown v. Board of Education, civil rights sort of was at that time. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are some actors that are doing that. And I know that there's funding for the Black Lives Matter movement and all these type of things. I just don't have a line of sight to the economic justice, social justice sort of action plans and organiz- organizing elements that exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, you know, the Urban League, all these places, I'm not sure they're even engaged in the same manner same that thing. they were before. Yeah, I think I think part of it is um, not to give uh, Republicans any more fire for their argument. I think a lot of it is um, integration uh, because we integrated. Um, you know, I I don't I think uh, we're not as close knit as we as we once were. So like the National Urban League and the NAACP, like they were, they were pillars of the community in a way that probably is not possible today. Mm-hmm. Because like, like if you were black, you only could live in five places or whatever it was. You know what I'm saying? Back in the day. And you only had like the NAACP. So all your money went to the NAACP because everybody was colored. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so you didn't have that, that separation. All There's always been class issues, but you didn't have the separation like, yo, I'm not with y'all no more. I'm over here with these white folks. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like we all was in the for the same. Like obviously it's good. It's always been good and bad areas of of, of our, every community. But like it was all like one under one umbrella. I right, we know that you know we black. We can't shop here or we can't bank here. So we got to do for self for the lack of a better term. And I think like the National Urban League and, and even the black church in a way. And the NAACP, like those historic organizations, they don't have the same power because we are fractured and we can do what kind of sort of do what we want to a certain extent. Yeah, that plus I think there's just like this. There's a difference between the service level. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm not engaged at that service level. But what I'm trying to say is. 
the way I look back at those moments and the way I read the history of how things went, it seemed like the NAACP and other organizations that were similarly situated were like retail organizations, more like they were at the street level, sort of similar to like a campaign office. Like Got you, you. there yeah. was an issue, you knew where to go because that was mm-hmm. the place where people were organizing, similar to our professor Worthy when she went to work on the uh, the mil- the march to march for Washington, she went to an office and you know she had tells the stories about that office. It was yeah. you know Stokely Carmichael would come through, uh, Martin yeah. Luther King. She everyone was coming through there. Through that that was office organized. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that like, makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know where that is in DC or when I go to New York or Brooklyn. So to me, with it would make that kind of place today and age could be online, right? It could be a place where those type of formulations are happening, but I, I don't know what it is, right? And gotcha. I, I, mean, I would feel that, you know, I would be involved, but maybe I'm not. Like when they started these protests, no one sent me a text message. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I wouldn't. You wasn't on the group text. You wasn't on the WhatsApp, yo. I'm left out. Left out, man. Maybe they ain't forgive you uh, for being a. Uh... Republican back in the day, reform. So you know, you, yo. All I want to know is like, like uh, this is my last point. That we got, we talk about what what you do yeah. daily, yo, yo. Who, what black person didn't vote for Obama, yo? <laughs> yo, I mean, I need them on the podcast, yo. That, so I'll give you the pass the first time. What black person didn't vote for Obama the second time? So the thing is, I think that's when people a lot. I mean, if you look at the numbers, he the went numbers, down. Yeah. The, it went down, and you know the funny part is, it went down especially among black men. So you know we gotta look at ourselves. Really? Yeah, black men, even in the like the the with black women were like ninety seven. Ninety seven percent. Yeah, they crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black men were like ninety two percent. Ninety percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which you know, that's like a rounding error. But if you put that on the whole popula- whole country. We're yeah. talking about a couple hundred thousand people. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know where they're at, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, it, it's rare to meet those people because, you know, why didn't you just sit at home, right? Um, yeah. Like, you really thought McCain and then um, Romney were better candidates, which you, which you could really do, but um, what part of their platforms were better? <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to meet. I would definitely want to I don't I'm sure I know somebody and they just don't ain't probably will never tell me or will never come up in conversation. But like just like the, the black person that voted for that did not vote for Obama, that voted for whoever during that race. Like just want to meet them and have a conversation like like what were you thinking? Like because you know we're we're dealing with exit polls too, right? That's so true. Yeah, those yeah. are you know, I, that's I've always wondered about them because if people were lying to you going in on the polls, right? The polls didn't really give you an accurate reflection of what they were, what they actually did at the in the ballot box. And then they came out and they told you something as well. How do you believe that nonsense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that's a whole other that's issue. That's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let's let's get on uh, to what you do um for a living. Cause I know we don't got all night. Um yeah, but thanks again, man, for doing this, man. I love you, man. No, it's my pleasure, you, even, man. Yeah, even you even though you stood me up on, on the last time. So <laughs> So talk about, so I brought you on to talk about the fine print of um, venture capitalism 
seed seed uh, funding, yeah, and, and investment banking. Um, so the premise of the podcast, as you know, but just to repeat it again, is like you know, I believe that people get jammed up in life or or just in business specifically. That's why redefine print come from, come from contracts because they don't redefine print of the contract, which you talked about earlier, right? Yeah. So it's like, but then you can apply that that concept, that analogy to everything in life. So it was like, so it's, it's not, so the podcast is not just talking about business, but I just so happened we about to talk about business. So what about like the, the stuff that no one talks about or people skip over the quote unquote fine print of venture capitalism um, that you would like the listeners to know? Um, whatever you want to know, whatever you want to talk about. I don't want to limit you how you want to pivot. No, no, that's, it's, that's it's interesting. There's a lot of fine print. And, you know, it's in, uh, one of the things that's the value of being a lawyer, when I've done due diligence or when I've evaluated whether an investment should be made in a company, and then I look at their paperwork, you know, like crossing their I's and dotting, crossing the T's and dotting their I's, right? Um, just around business formation, there's a couple of things I want to say about that. And then there's a couple of things I want to say about when you actually receive an investment. And uh-huh. then, you know, we can talk about investment banking and some things around it. But one of the things that I've learned is that when you start up a company, most people start with an idea. They go straight to GoDaddy or whatever domain registrar and they register it. Uh-huh. And they use their own bank card and uh-huh. then they register it under their own name. Uh-huh. And then they start their business, right? Uh-huh. Uh, then they might go and go do the state registration and what have you. And that's a if, right? Um, yeah. And some people can go along that path for a long time. And they don't have to do like do the administrative work, which is just their personality. They, they don't like clean up the books. They don't do their, uh-huh. that type of behavior. Generally, I've noted kind of just goes with you. If you decided that you're not going to register your business, you're not going to do all these things, more than likely, as things get better, it becomes less valuable to you because some people just think, let me just handle these things first and I'll then I'll do the rest. Some people uh-huh. think, let me just get started. And those uh-huh. are just basically, you know, there's shades between them, but generally people who are successful either are like at extremes, right? Uh-huh. And one of the things I've noticed around the people who are at the extreme of not really dealing with the administrative part, uh, you know, they sort of avoid hard things or things that they perceive as hard, right? And in venture capital, when I'm looking at an investment, one of the things I look for are people who can, who take on challenges, right? Okay. So whether it's something small to something large, whether it's like, you know, growing their revenue 10 times or 10x every or two times every quarter, you know, doubling their revenue every every three months or something. That's a hard challenge. Uh-huh. Well, what's an easy hard challenge is registering your business. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then sometimes there's the fine print of it is if you started your business before you registered it, meaning you bought assets that are your that your business uses and you haven't done a uh intellectual property uh and uh assignment agreement between yourself and your organization right that Mm -hmm. shows me one you've either not chosen to get counsel or two 
you don't see the value of counsel, mm. right? So you so you're ready to risk it all almost, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then you want to do these great things, so it, something doesn't match up, something doesn't add up. And where else do am I going to see those those mismatches? That's what it's like a signal. So if you're not mm. handling, so for me, the fine print in business formation has to do with the loose ends that you create by having the business idea. Like everyone wants, I, for me, I believe you should have the business idea. You should try to do um, as many experiments to see and validate the business idea, right? And doing those things, you incur issues and you don't have to be right at first, but you have to be willing to take on the responsibility to get right quick, mm -hmm. right? Gotcha. And so, you know, and that's just like a posture. That's just a behavior that um, sort of the better, higher performing founders that I've met and that normally address. If you don't, it eventually comes, kicks you or bites you in the butt, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's shining examples of it, like uh, with uh, Adam Newman, uh, where he, you know, WeWork has been around for, what, 10 years or so? But not until, like, last year did he, or two years ago, did he get around to selling the trademark We to WeWork. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So he owned the trademark. He eventually sold it to WeWork, but it was at some crazy price of, like, a couple million dollars. And everyone, and this was in the, in the run-up to them filing... Or an IPO, so then you had to clean up everything. But now yeah. the, the the insignia we is more valuable, so you get to buy it, and you're going to make more money than your company. So yeah. it's it's one of those things where if he would have handled it, or his investors when he initially were doing it were to say, let's just make sure we have you all the intellectual property assets governed under one agreement, just so we don't deal with something in the future that seems outrageous. Gotcha. Right. So. I mean, it happens. That's, a, that's a crazy that they uh, that even they didn't even catch that. Yeah, exactly. Investment. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people wouldn't, right? I mean, if you have just a general investor, a lot of times, especially around the time where he was getting funding, his uh, WeWork was getting funding. A lot of investors were making quick, quick decisions when they feel like a deal was hot. So mm -hmm. they don't necessarily go through the the layers of due diligence uh, of it all. Due yeah. diligence that would happen. Um, which, you know, sometimes happens when you got uh, founders that are not, like, people of color, right? And when yeah. you do have founders who are people of color, you're going to probably, you know, want to make sure that you don't send any bad signals, right? Uh -huh. um, so that's one, like, kind of thing, like the fine print. And then another fine print kind of moment in business, in venture capital especially, is when you get taken investments from a venture capital firm. Mm -hmm. So if you're lucky enough to either get into an accelerator or if you are actually investing, getting invested in by uh, a firm, that's when the funny business starts, right? So because of the way, the type of returns that a venture capital investor wants to get, there's a lot of sort of funny terms that are sort of inserted. So one of the funny terms is, depending on the instrument you use, so if you get an agreement that is a safe or a simple agreement for future equity, 
or if you get a convertible debt note, or if you get a, um, you know, just a straight up equity purchase agreement that mm -hmm. they might provide you, you'll first get a term sheet that'll detail what that happens. But there's the funny terms that you might see are a venture firm wants to have a certain amount of return, like let's say two times their money. So uh -huh. they may put in a preferred share, which has a guaranteed amount of money that they are, or a guaranteed profit that they have to get before you can Invest. get any yeah. investment uh, yep. or before you can um, not get any investment, but you can sell the company. Let's say yeah. you did sell, but let's say you have an environment where you don't sell, right? A lot of people don't sell their business. So you have an environment that you don't sell. You can get to a place where a lot of founders get to where they get fired from their own business. From their own business, yeah. yeah. Happened to Steve Jobs. Yeah, it happened to Steve Jobs. It happens yeah. to a lot of people. When people a put people, a lot yeah. of money into your business, you own less of it, even though you control it and they control value it. your opinion. You they kick you out. They I mean, I mean out, it happens yeah. with it happens with people. Uh and it happens more often. Um, it happens often to black founders as well. And a lot of that has to do with how you've chosen your investors or who you've chosen to be an investor. Um, sometimes it happens with who's basically on your team and is scheming to get you out. Um, but, um, well, you know what? I don't, I don't necessarily think not, not to cut you mm -hmm. off. No, well, I guess I'm cutting you off. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing sometimes like to get the, the founder out of there. Cause the founder might've been great at, founding the company, but they're not necessarily have the skill set to take it to the next level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree on that, that that is not that is a thing. But if you if you've chosen the right investors and hopefully you will, but you can, I don't know about it, kicked out. So I shouldn't say kicked out. Maybe they shouldn't be necessarily be CEO. Yeah, even they, like it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But the thing is, there's a way to to build things around people Like you can build structures and 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 support where someone can be a CEO and, or you can change them to an executive vice chairman, you know, all these yeah. different terms. Yeah, the, the reason I'm saying that, I'm thinking of um, 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 Bill Gates because Bill Gates hasn't been the CEO of Microsoft in a long time. I mean, he never lost control of it either, but he recognizes that's not where his skill set is best used at. So he's uh, whatever he is, like president of software development. I don't know his title, but he's not the CEO. He hasn't been the CEO for a long time, though, actually. Mm -hmm. He's still the chairman yeah. of the board, so he, he covers, he controls that board, though, which is the, that's how you get up, get put up, get get up out of there when that, <laughs> you don't control that board. But that that's the fine print of when you receive investments. It's knowing what your actual shareholding, your actual ownership stake is, especially mm. what your ownership stake would be um, if all the agreements that you have signed, because what I've seen over time is that a lot of people will have an agreement with an investor, an agreement with this investor, and then they have all these different terms, and they're not really sure what would happen if someone made an uh, made an offer to purchase their company. Would they have the most amount of shares if everything sort of uh, all the terms for acceleration? And that's what uh -huh. I'm worth referring to is that a lot of a lot of things that founders don't think about yeah you know a lot of people think about how many shares do i have how diluted i would be 
But most people don't think about if these terms accelerated, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times there's acceleration clauses of if there's an offer, blah, blah, blah. What, yeah. what will I effectively own, right? Because if you, if the terms accelerate, oftentimes you get diluted even more. So if you own, uh, uh, let's say, 60% of your company and you've mm -hmm. taken in investments for 40%, do you think you have the, you might control your board? Do you think you have the right to sell? At your because you determined it, you can you can fire the board members and then just re uh, vote the next day, right? But right, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think a lot of times people get jammed up when it's moving fast. And um, mm -hmm. I had a couple people that was like, um, "Yo, I got to give them this money like tomorrow." Like they trying to invest in thing. I'm like, bro, like that's not. <laughs> that's not <laughs> it's not a good idea i don't care what they're offering you like maybe it's a good idea but I, that's just a, a that, going back to don't let the lawyer kill your deal if you think you need to be in that hot investment that you got to have your money in by tomorrow power to you but that means that they at the final straw of people that they went to to get money to make this thing happen and, and they're at you they didn't think about you way before, <laughs> but they need it overnight tomorrow like you're the last person on the list. You're one of the last people they they they're reaching out to to make this thing happen. Um, yeah, that's a that's another thing from the investment side, like from the angel investor side. There's some like just understanding why did I get this deal, right? That's a really strong. Why did I get this deal? I like that one. So, because a lot of times people make decisions, like for instance, uh, throughout my career, I've, I've built like angel investment groups. Uh -huh. So that's in startups. And one of the biggest factors that people uh, have to consider is like, where's the origin of the deal? A lot of times people like that it was the source came from a warm referral. But the uh -huh. reason why they like it is because they understand why they got the transaction. Otherwise, if it's like they it feels like they pick it, they picked it up off the street, meaning uh -huh. that they shouldn't have gotten the deal. And if they did, they weren't the first one to get it. And that's a signal to them that it's not a good deal. Uh -huh. Right. So, um, for example, a lot of people like to get things from their alumni network. They think, well, I went to this school. I paid for this membership to be a part of the alumni. I get these things because I went to the school, even if it's the signal isn't true. Right. Yeah. Like, they shared it to the hundred thousand people that went to your undergrad. It, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're yeah. part of the exclusive club. <laughs> but, so you, well, yeah, y'all, y'all a hundred thousand deep, a million deep. That that's exclusive. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But people like that feeling, and what happens is, if as an angel investor or as an investor, just generally, you have to kind of be sure that you got the deal because you were, you had some a lot in in the business. They call it proprietary deal source. So uh -huh. some way that you know that you got in the deal first um, or early, you understand why it's good or why it will be bad. And from an investor standpoint, I think one of the things, like I said it from the startup standpoint or the founder perspective, but on the other side, I've seen issues with founder um, that the investors have made an investment. They didn't do their like real due diligence and the founder has has decided to move on or do something else uh -huh. and they move on with a with assets of the mm. company 
yeah. or assets that you think are rightfully owned by the company, especially intellectual property assets, right? And you start arguing, there's arguments now of who actually owned the asset. But then the investor said, well, I didn't make sure that there was any uh, intellectual property assignment agreement. I didn't know yeah. that the website was registered to the person. I didn't, you know, you know, like yeah. those type of things where you look back at it and you will kick yourself in the, in the butt because you say, I mean, that's like a simple, easy question. And that should be table stakes, right? Yeah. For an investment. But a lot of investors, either they, they use documents from other people and they think that those questions are thorough because they trust the other person. Yeah. And or they, you know, people love to shortchange lawyers. That's a fact. Oh, I know that right. for a fact. Yeah. But like at certain points, and that and that really makes it the threshold, right? Because lawyers create a barrier to entry because there's fees, right? If you charge, if I'm only going to invest ten thousand dollars, right, and my lawyer is going to cost me uh, two thousand five hundred, maybe I'm not going to choose the lawyer, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you know because that's like you know that's a good percentage of that's twenty percent of the deal, yeah. right? Um, so you know this deal will have to really perform well to cross that threshold um as opposed to thinking that you're actually investing twelve thousand dollars and five twelve thousand dollars in the deal yeah. right as yeah. opposed to thinking that the lawyer's fees that you either pay on retainer or that you pay in that in that transaction are part of the transaction fees so you really invested the whole thing so mm -hmm. your return will be on a percentage of the lawyer's work as opposed to it being a uh, a factor that you consider it it really just changes the denominator right yeah but it makes it easier to cross the, the threshold and and makes you not think of the lawyer's fees as a as a fee and to be honest there's ways to recover lawyer's fees when you make investments right like yeah. if you're in an advantageous position you can say that the that it has to count as part of your investment investment yeah right? yeah absolutely yeah yeah, that's when that's when um people gotta um be what's the word I'm looking for? I don't I don't I don't want to say season, but for the lack of a better term, season and like knowing what they're looking for and how to structure a deal and negotiation negotiation process. Um, because yeah, like I get that all the time. Like people, you know, they just don't they just don't I don't think people understand the value of a lawyer until until shit goes wrong. I actually gonna put that on. A, social media posts like you don't really realize the value of a good lawyer because you know it's a good and bad lawyers everywhere um until the thing goes wrong and the shit hits the fan and you like man exactly what is it it's uh you know it's this phrase belts and suspenders like a, a good lawyer um uh, a regular lawyer is just going to keep you in a belt right and a, a good lawyer is going to have you belts and suspenders because they know that sometimes, you know, that buckle falls off. Mm -hmm. um, but your pants, you want your pants to stay up, right? And I think that's one of the the, the challenges of when people don't know what they don't know, right? They, you know, I, from time to time, help people that want legal services, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, even from a lawyer perspective, you have to think to yourself, uh, maybe, why is this person coming to me? I'm not the first person that you should come to if you want legal services, right? Like yeah. I don't even 
I don't even practice on a regular basis. <laughs> so you, you're either trying to get the lowest of the low on the yeah. friend rate, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and then, you know, I get friend rate problems, right? Like, yeah. like oh, wait a second. I don't really want to do all of that. And then, cause, you know, I'm like, okay, you just got to pay me an hour, right? Yeah. Knowing it's going to take me five hours to do something. I yeah. say, you can pay me an hour. But what happens is people like just over like if you if you tell someone's going to take you an hour and it's going to take you five and then people like go over and they're like well can i get some more for that same bucket of an hour but wait yeah. a second i really build you underbuild you yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah like I, I mean that that's hard that was a hard thing to do as an attorney when i first started off but just like being comfortable with telling people that my, my what my price is you know what i'm saying and definitely like Especially when I went out on my own, like, all right, I'm gonna take this short money. Um, I, I normally would charge whatever, but I'm gonna charge this fee as a drastic lower just because I want the business. You know what I'm saying? But now, nah, bro. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, every now and then, like, if I like a person a lot, like, if I just personally like the person, like, I might work with them for like a, a discounted rate. But outside of that, it's like it's not worth it because they're gonna complain anyway. Like, they're gonna complain about your fee. Whether it's one fifty versus a thousand, you know what I'm saying? They're gonna complain either way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they, they they don't want to pay you like they like nobody pays a lawyer because they want to pay a lawyer. You know what I'm saying? It's not yeah. one of them things that, and people don't people always think they can do what you what you can do too. That's also one of them things like, you know, you got legal zoom and all these. You have Google people googling terms and all that type of stuff. But like I always tell people, you pay me for like to go through the fine print and and to make sure that, um you not get jammed up on a legal lease because you don't, I ain't saying like you can't learn it, but it's, it's definitely an art and science to it. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. and then like, and you need, you need me to tell you the shit that you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things where people try to, uh, use legal documents that they see online that are form documents, and they take that and they, you know, whether it's from startups to VCs, they use that as a as a baseline. And then when they make the adjustments in the document, they don't think that they are material adjustments. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's when you don't know what you don't know. Right? <laughs> you don't. You don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You don't know. And those, those, those. Just for the record, let everybody know. Even legal zoom, legal zoom, or wherever you get your legal documents for free. Like those are just templates. Like they're supposed to be generic as possible for the most part, so you can use them. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should be using them <laughs> as generic as possible. <laughs> exactly. You know the 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 my the analogy I like to use is you know when you get a recipe online, right? You you can get a recipe online. That's a template, right? But it doesn't know the temperature of your stove, if you got gas, if you have electric. It doesn't know what type of ingredients you really have, whether it's fresh or whether it's, you know, you, it doesn't really, it's not really tailored for your house, right? Mm-hmm. It's not tailored for your life. And if you try to pretend like it is, especially when you start using substitutes, right? Mm-hmm. Like it says you need baking soda, but you got baking powder. So you think it's just the same. <laughs> You think it's the same shit? <laughs> like, like, yeah. They said use mustard seed, but you got mustard mustard flour. It's okay. Yeah. What could yeah. be the difference? Yeah. It's like, 
Well, you wouldn't like th- these are the type of things that to me, I would think that, yeah, I could think this way, but I know that there's some issues. Let me just talk to someone, right? But you probably um, because you are you are, you are an attorney too, so that's probably why you have that on your radar. Like the average joker don't have that, they just think they know. And it's an ego because you got to kind of have like a big ego to like to really go hard in business too. Like thinking you know it all. Um, it's a lot of issues. But go ahead. I ain't mean to cut you off, man. I know you no, got no, that, more that's fun. 100% right about business though. Business and ego, yeah. especially in, um, I mean, in my business and in, in investment banking, um, there was a lot of egos. Um, and the egos really get people into issues. Ego, whether it's like people trying to go uh, and, you know, with their legal documents, pushing it to the edge of where the business could be sustainable, yeah. um, you know, um, and or the ego as to, um, you know, thinking they're above legal documents, right? Yeah. Like they and they eventually uh, get sort of hemmed up by the whole yeah. process. Um so it's it's an interesting sort of uh, dynamic around ego and business, right? Uh, kind of gets yeah, people you, in a lot of trouble. Yeah, because you need the ego to push through because, you know, I think I think the term I'm, I'm looking for is ego. Like this, like people telling you it's not going to work, mm-hmm. your stomach is touching and growling, like you need some type of stuff that's going to push you through. It got to be crazy, too, in a lot of ways, like to push through all the madness and and the, the sacrifice to to see it all the way through. So I don't know if ego the, the proper word I'm looking for, but ego definitely get jammed up because people think they know way more than they know. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a problem in society, period. But especially in business, I see. Like, bro, you don't know it all. Like, mm-hmm. fam. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What one interesting thing around ego? There's different ways for it to manifest, right? But one of the interesting things that I've found, like, you know, I raise capital for my business and hopefully and for the startups that I've invested in and support. And one of the things that I've always tell people in the fundraising process is you need you need four ingredients. Ego isn't really one of them, but uh-huh. one of them is like, you know, simple bare bones. You need to be able to last for however long. So you need money that will help you last for however long it takes for you to fundraise. So you need that runway of money. If you run out of it, you know, you're in, you're in trouble, right? And then two, you need, um, you need leads. Just like if you were running a sales process, you need to have people who you have a funnel of people that you'll eventually raise capital from. So you need that funnel to consistently be replenished either through referrals or, through networking or whichever way that you do it. But then the other two ingredients, you can't really, you can't really uh, you do anything about, right? It's not like any activity based. One is hope, right? Hope, and then the other is faith. And then you can faith, turn that, okay. that hope into ego, right? Uh-huh. That you just know that you should do it. But you know, the fundraising process, most times for most people, not all, uh, will humble you. Right. Uh, so, you know, that ego sort of soon enough gets knocked down to hope and faith. Gotcha. gotcha. Right. So, you know, but you if at any point you run out of any three of those, you're done. Right. If you run you're out done. of money, okay. hope and faith, don't matter how many leads you got, you're not going to be able to, to do anything. And okay. if you run out of money, 
Uh, and if you run out of, uh, you know, leads, uh, money, and faith, you ain't going nowhere, no matter how much you hope, right? Gotcha. So yeah. you need three, you, you need uh, at least two of those ingredients at any time. And you can keep going. You can rub two pennies together and have hope and faith. And, you, and you're okay. It's yeah, when yeah. you keep going. You'll find yeah. a way. You'll find uh, a way. Got you. So you said you said you have to have the uh, a money to last you to the, the point where you can raise the money or become profitable, right? Yeah. I guess. And then you need leads, hope, and faith. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll put that in the show notes. The two things you need. Well, four things you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what has been some of like the biggest barriers being um, a black man, Nigerian, African, um, in the in the venture capitalist venture capitalist C funding space. Like, mm, I think one of the, you know, I, I would say this, one of the barriers that I've faced is not a new barrier, right? Like, um, it's, and it's actually gotten progressively better as I started focusing uh, my efforts in America rather than only in Africa. Um, but, you know, I, I've never chosen like the easy route in my life. It, mm. it looks like, like I started off in engineering. There's not a lot of black people in engineering. Yeah. At all, right like i was yeah. going to all these conferences and everyone kept on telling me you're a black man in engineering there's none of you wow. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so and, and then I, I went to law school and same thing happened there right it was like black lawyer man yeah. you know yeah. we went to uh, howard law and there's 64 percent of them or today's class is 67 percent female so you know, to be a black man in law school, in the biggest black law school in America, yeah. and then you're, you're still a minority, it's like, wow. Yeah. It don't get no yeah. easier. It don't get easier. <laughs> and, and, and what's crazy, not to still, not to throw you off track, keep hold that thought, what's crazy is that, well, at least for me, like, you don't realize, like, you know there's not a lot of black attorneys, but when you go to Howard, because I didn't know any black attorneys until I was, like, in my 20s. Mm-hmm. But then you, when you go to Howard, you, like, for those three years, like you're in a bubble and like <laughs> you go on places, everybody looks like you, except for when you go to them bullshit ass firm recruiting things. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's when yeah. you're like, Oh, we it's only the only people that's here that's black is from Howard. <laughs> when in the in the partner <laughs> yeah. that they put out the the entertainers that's black, the only black partner or associate that they put out the entertainers. But um outside of that, you like when you leave Howard. And Howard was it? Well, ironically, Howard wasn't even one of my number one choice. But now, like, I'm so glad I went to Howard. When you leave Howard, you just realize like how few black attorneys that they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, this shit is crazy. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I know a lot of black attorneys because I went to Howard and I'm in social media. I don't know how many I would know if I if social media didn't exist. But um, but you like, oh, like I went to like a mediation training. Yeah, I was the I was the one I was the youngest person there, and I was the only black person there, and they're just like, yo, this shit is crazy, and it's like thirty <laughs> people in the, in the room, you know what I'm saying? Like when I go to CLEs, well, I do a lot of CLEs online now, but you go to CLEs and you be like, and this is New York City, billions <laughs> of people, right? I don't know how many attorneys, but going there, you might be like, maybe a hundred people in the room or whatever it is, and it's like five attorneys, three attorneys, two, three black attorneys. It's just crazy, man. It is crazy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's. I mean, when you think of it, most schools might have like ten to fifteen black people, right? Like, outside of Howard, there's Harvard and Georgetown, 
and Georgetown is like second or third, and they have like 60 black people, right? So they have half the class or that we have, third, right? A third of the class of Howard. So it's not even it's not even close, right? And then you know, so you know, Howard is literally for most. It's like t- like you're going to ten law schools because you got one uh, you know, yeah. concentrated mass of people. But you know, after law school, I went into investment banking, and there ain't no black people there either. So, yeah. you know, I've actually never been in a space where there's a lot of black people. Um, so for me, um, I actually measure it through the difficulty to do the work that I want to do because uh-huh. of the desires that I have. Like so, when I uh, left investment banking, investment banking was easy to me relatively being black. But the issue for me was really, okay, once I started on investment banking, I wanted to do Africa work. And I realized uh-huh. how difficult it was to pitch Africa, um, African opportunities to investors that were not African, right? Mm, gotcha. And, I, yeah. and so I started to learn more about the challenge of my profession, the challenge of being black, by once I started to try to be focused on doing the same work that I was doing, but doing it where the beneficiaries or where the dollars would go were to black people. Uh-huh. Um, that's when I realized, I was like, wow, this is challenging. I was like, why is it so challenging to get money in Africa? The returns are better. Like, you know, when you think of things as meritocracies or what have you, yeah. you, when you and then when you look at from a merit-based system, you say, well, if you believe in Af- if you believe in just business and you see the returns that have happened before, this this is like a no-brainer, right? Like this is great. Yeah. You got billions and trillions of dollars. Look at this opportunity. You you need you know, like American pension funds, uh, European pension funds. They have to grow to the point where they can pay for the pension liability. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That they have. Yeah. So they need to find ways to grow and risk-adjusted ways to grow. So they should look for places where they can get higher returns. And instead of placing it into the hands of um, people who are black, whether they're the global black diaspora in America or, you know, you know, other places, they avoid those places, especially Africa. So I learned that initially when investment banking focused on Africa and I, you know, moved to the States and focused on um, angel and seed investing in America. And it was, you know, it is a degree easier, right? So, yeah. um, not selling uh, investment opportunity that's 5,000 miles away and only having to say, well, they're black, they're just here. You know, to me, it's a degree of ease that I didn't have before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, for, for me now, I, I mean, it's, it's still tough, right, uh, to um, be black, mainly because, you know, there's quiet injustices where, you know, you can be... You can have all the experience and it's never about the experience. It never was. It's about the um, it's about expectations. And when we get back to this uh, part of expectations where if people have these quiet expectations for you to underperform, that's really what dictates your outcome. Right. Like Uh if you, for example, there's a lot of there, not a lot. There's like 200 black people in venture capital, 250 or so. Right. There is no 
none of them have a fund that is over a billion dollars. No black-led firm is managing over a billion dollars in venture capital. Now that doesn't that doesn't really make a difference to the average everyday person. But what it says to me is that either the pension funds, the corporations, and the uh, and the billionaire investor class see people who are of color or black and don't see them, don't value their network, right? Mm. Don't think that their network will pr- be able to produce the dreams of the future, right? So if you value the future that the networks of people of color have, they, you think that they are going to have the opportunities that will create value, billion-dollar value in the future. When that doesn't come from the public pension fund, to me, that says, you know, a lot of the largest public pension funds have a lot of black people as their underlying beneficiaries. That's a fact. And if they're not doling out money, like they're the public, they're they're not just the government, they're the public. If they should be, the public should believe in the black people because it's the money of black people who are in, who are actually in those sort of pots as well. And that's over a billion. There's billions and billions upon billions of um, black long-term savings that is tied up into pension funds. Pension funds, yeah. Right? So that's like just, that's like the bare minimum that should be there in all the slates of opportunities and assets, whether it's in mutual funds or uh, asset management firms. It should be in the hands of the people that are very representative of the people that are, have made the savings. It should be in the hands of the people who are the best stewards of it. When you look at the numbers, that's always been people of color, women have always done better when they are provided the capital to deploy. So one of the factors that I actually, so long story short, it's challenging. It's not a challenge that I've not faced in the past, um, but it is something from an economic justice standpoint that I believe is one of the bricks that has to come down, right? Like the one of the walls that have to come down is the belief that black people's dreams in business are valid. And whether it's any part of the capital sec that does it, and especially around what enables most business formation, which is home loans, those mm-hmm. things, those barriers have to go down, right? And I believe that any part of the wall that forms a blockage to uh, economic justice for black people in America needs to fall. And, you know, I do face a part of that um, in venture capital. It obviously is not the biggest part that affects most people, but it is something that I face. Got you. Got you, man. I think, I think we gotta, we gotta wrap up. I gotta have you back on again, brother. The, the former, former darkie number two. <laughs> what you darkie number one or darkie number two? I don't know. Did we number ourselves? I, I, I think I, I think I, there I was don't. a number system. I think so. I don't okay. know. I don't remember. I'm darkie that... noir though. That's what I'm gonna call myself. <laughs> darkie what? Darkie noir. noir. <laughs> hey yo, do not walk up to this man, nor walk up to me calling us darkies because you don't. That's an inside thing. You don't have the history. You might you might get hurt. You know what I'm saying? I, not walk up to this man and call him darky. That's an inside joke. Um, exactly. You don't have yeah. no idea what that's about. Do not do that. That is funny, though. That is funny. Like, if 
I would really be offended if someone came up to me and said that. But with you and I, with the shared history, you know, you know, it's really funny because I've, I've actually never had that slur. I've had the N-word said to me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't react. But the I'm, I would really be offended if someone called me because that's like that's even worse. Yeah. So <laughs> who, who made that? Up? Was it me or you that came up with that? I don't remember. It was one of us. It was one of us in the in the. Well, we were in the library. I remember that. Yeah, we was in the library, and I was like, "Yo, all these people got um." I think you came up with darky because I was like, "Yo, all these people got um, uh, um, study groups. It must be they leaving me out because I'm dark skin." <laughs> I think I said something like that. Yeah. I was wild. I was wild. I was way wilder back in those days with my uh mouth. I need to get back on that because I probably be way more entertaining on the podcast. <laughs> No, see, that's the thing. You got to go to the match, man. You got to go to the match. You got a personality, so you got to let it out. I've, I've actually wrapped up my personality for quite a while, and I decided to let it let it free. Yeah. Now, you was, you was wild in law school, yo. You was mad funny. Like, the thing is, like, I'm actually very cool now. Like, this is my personality. Like, I'm not, for better and worse, I'm not, like, the guy's going to say the wild stuff for now. You know what I'm saying? But I probably got to start doing that for the entertainment purposes of this. If we want to take this podcast to the next level, get some venture capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> capitalism <on. laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, I would, um, I mean, you, you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to cut through the noise, right? So, yeah. you know, just, just staying consistent, I've heard, is the best thing. Yeah, I but, think I'm doing all right. I am definitely don't <laughs> think I'm, um, I'm still getting used to like having like the headphones and the mic and I think I'm doing all right. I think um I'm not fully you know just to be transparent. I don't think I'm fully authentic yet for whatever reasons. I mean yeah, I mean it yeah. doesn't I mean the this is one of the challenges of being a lawyer to me is that I mean from from certain perspectives you may always want to just become a politician. <laughs> right and yeah. if you if you end up like running for office and you you created a own goal like a statement yeah. against your own interest yeah yeah it's it's sort of risky but risky yeah yeah i think part of it is like i know like i represent you know a lot of people mm-hmm. organizations well three mainly that you know that i care a lot about that i, I can't really I know that's part of it. I can't really say what I really want to say. I mean, for the most part, I haven't had the conversations where I was about to say something wild and it didn't come out. Um, but I, I, that is definitely in the back of my mind. Like, all right, so I'm on Henry J. Austin's um, Law Center board. So I know, like, I mean, not Law Center, Health Center board. So I know, like, all right, I can't go wild because that board, that organization is dependent on me. You know what I'm saying? I know that is part of it. But like I said, I haven't had... Um, I haven't had any conversations. This is like my 15th, 16th episode that I really was like, I wanted to say something wild and not held back. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so it is what it is. But yo, we got to do it again, man. Yeah, um, let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Hey, my bad thanks. for the last time. I was, I think I, I forgot what I was working on that got me caught up. And then by the time I, I realized or took took a second look, it was already late. So. Yeah, so because uh, uh, we we obviously we talk outside by, beyond this, but now I think that economic justice, man, I think that's my my calling too. Like, because mm-hmm. I I'm not this might sound wild to some people. I'm not going out there to march. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. just not doing it. My feet hurt. <laughs> I got I got back issues. I'm not doing it. Um, but I think the economic part, we could talk about that. And probably on other podcasts, definitely talk about that behind the scene, the economic justice part. Yeah, I think I mean, that I, when you think about it, someone's got to keep the lights on, and you somebody know, has I to look, pay the bill. Yeah, you know, and I look back at the times of the Black Panther Party and the you know SNCC and all these organizations, and one of the things that sort of there's always like a statement as to in the Black community that was looking at them at the time as to how their funding wasn't from uh-huh. the Black community. Like there's uh-huh. always sort of a a um, a dig that was said in you know little circles because at the end of the day the work is the work and you get things done you get things done, but one of the things that I find that I want to be a part of is making sure that whether it's candidates to uh, from candidates that are running for office causes or uh, organizations I want to make sure that you know the the work that I do that I've learned to do through uh, raising capital for on behalf of myself and the companies that I invest in, I want to leverage that same kind of skill set to do it for organizations, uh-huh. especially amongst uh, their natural consistency. So like, gotcha. yeah. like black people that benefit and, you know, and also one of the things I've been, I've been working on is trying to figure out a way where um, I support the alignment of immigrant communities and black Americans, especially black immigrant communities Uh to sort of join forces as a, as a new natural constituency that kind of aligns itself under the black American uh, political umbrella where the organization is already in place. Uh Um, So that's going to be an interesting, interesting fight that we can talk about. You're going to be done with xenophobia. You got the class issues. Then you got the issues coming from their country, like they have issues with their, within their group. Now, what's interesting about, and I'm going to end it on this. Unless you, I'm going to let you get the last word. But what's interesting about when I went to South Africa, Africa is huge, by the way, people. If you don't know, you could fit three Americas in South Africa. So South Africa represents a very small part of. The experience that's going on in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I when I went to Africa, like so so in America, you born and raised, you always gonna you always def- at least being African American, you define yourself as black, African American, whatever. I guess Negro back in the day, um, colored. <laughs> um, so you don't you don't necessarily so you see somebody. I mean, there's class distinctions in in African American. I'm not gonna say that doesn't happen in regional stuff, but you, at the end of the day, you're black. Like going to South Africa, like what I realized is people define themselves by their tribal organization first, like the tribal affiliation. Like I'm mm-hmm. Kosa. Like I don't even know if I even heard the term black like that in mm-hmm. when I went to South Africa. Like they were like, I'm whatever, whatever they tribal history where they from. They was like, I'm that. And I mean, I, I probably have heard black, but I think they were using like native stuff, terms like native or something like that. But it was interesting, like to be in a place where the majority place that majority of people are black, but they don't necessarily say that they're black. You know what I'm saying? That was very super duper interesting. And I'm sure it's like that in Nigeria and other places. Cause you're not really like black is black and white is only really is mad generic. And it's only really, really like, I think parlayed and pushed to the front 
as like racial groups only in America. Because even in Europe, like they got tribal affiliation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like we here and we just try to be generic as possible to include anybody because we're a nation of immigrants, quote unquote. But it's like, yeah, like nobody really uses the terms black and white like we use them in the, in the, in the States. That's been my experience when I go those place, other places. And I've been a couple places. I ain't been a lot, but I've been a okay. couple places and it's like, they don't even use these terminologies like that. But I'm going to give you the last word, brother. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to dovetail into what you said and to tie some strings together from our entire conversation that, you know, I was not in America during the previous Black Lives Matter moment. And um, at that time, I got to, like, basically watch what things were happening in America from outside, but having been, you know, I, well, I was raised and educated in America and I was just working in Nigeria and I was able to view it in a very different lens than I am able to view it now, right? Mm. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the idea that I was in a black majority country and I didn't have to deal with the weight mm -hmm. of being um, a race. I was a person that was from an ethnic that is a, of an ethnicity and the more of the identity issues that i had to deal with was the fact that i'm both Igbo and yoruba mm -hmm. and rather than uh Igbo and yoruba and then having grown up in the u.s rather than having to deal with the fact that i'm black american and a lot of africans view what's going on in america from that lens that they don't have to have the weight of what America puts on race, racial identity. So when they see sort of this idea that either economic opportunities or any type of opportunities is blocked because of race, it's hard to believe because they don't gotcha. understand the weight of it. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. And similarly, this is one of the, the my longtime thesis is that when black Americans or black people in America or wherever in the global diaspora look at what's going on in Africa or look at challenges, they don't have to have the weight of whatever is going on there in those countries. So a lot of times it's a very um, sort of, you know, people are speaking not to each other in terms mm -hmm. of the global black diaspora and the continent and not really talking to each other and meeting each other where they, um, where where they would naturally meet, which isn't on race, but isn't on identity, no per se, but it's, it's more on a person-to-person -person level. Uh -huh. um, so, but, you know, I, I think, you know, just to wrap it up, I'm really sort of uh, uh, hopeful of this moment leading to, um, you know, basically not being a flavor of the moment news cycle like this just doesn't wash away the coronavirus or COVID-19 it doesn't take away um you know the impeachment that happened only six months ago yeah, <laughs> it, doesn't, absolutely, yeah. it doesn't take away things but hopefully it resets something major you know before Jim Crow ended people found it hard to believe Jim Crow would ever end before slavery ended you know people talking about abolition um, were seen as far-fetched. Um, I am very hopeful that something as pivotal as the uh, abolition of slavery or the end of Jim Crow will amount to or, or will surface in this moment. Maybe it is about policing 
Maybe it's about economic justice. But all I know is I'm very hopeful that this moment that people um, find, we Black people, find a way to structure a plan that may lead to a systemic change that mm-hmm. was as integral as those past moments. Gotcha. We're going to end it with that. And, yo, thanks again, brother. Yeah. Right, let me stop the recording. Um, uh, how you stop this joint? All right.